Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. On our episode today, we are going to go back into the golden age of resorts, when summer leisure was serious business, and the opportunities for enjoying a summer day seemed almost endless. Today, we talk about the history of one of the largest resorts on the west side of Michigan, the Lake Harbor Hotel. The Lake Harbor Hotel, at its height, had various facilities that covered about five acres. It offered all the best amenities a beach resort today would try to provide, and you couldn't beat its location. Located atop a rise on today's Mona Lake Channel, right next to Lake Michigan, with a view of Mona Lake, the Lake Harbor Hotel certainly looked the part of a resort. And in a time before air conditioning, the cool lake breezes provided the feel of paradise. This resort, though, started out humbly enough. The land that would encompass the resort was first owned by a berry farmer named Julius Ansesdale. Anastale was a pioneer of Lake Harbor, and besides berries, also planted an orchard on his land. The ideal location of his farm was noticed, and Antisdale was asked many times by passers-by if they could stay in his house for the summer. After a particularly bad year in 1885, when his fruit crop froze, he decided to build a hotel on his land to meet that demand. This hotel was small, but very successful, and in 1892, a group called the Lake Harbor Hotel Company bought it, and some of the surrounding property to construct a larger hotel. One notable thing that Antisdale did before selling, though, was planting maple trees around the property of the hotel. These trees would continue to grow and become a beautiful addition to the grounds over the years. The hotel company, while they owned the building, didn't manage it, choosing instead to lease it to enterprising individuals, one of whom was an Edward R. Sweat, who leased it in 1896. Sweat found it worthwhile and would buy the hotel and grounds at the end of the resort year so he could make some notable improvements to it for the following year. The hotel would stay in the Sweat family's management for the remainder of its lifespan. Edward R. Sweat was a Chicago attorney, but had also ran the Hyde Park Hotel in Chicago before he purchased the Lake Harbor Hotel. The hotel and the surrounding 130 acres were acquired for $32,000, which would be over a million dollars today, so it was a very large purchase at the time. Sweat, though, would immediately spend another $15,000 to update the hotel, doubling its size so that it had 200-plus rooms and its space for four to 500 guests. This expansion included adding space to the hotel's dining room, which was a popular destination for its guests, but also for Muskegon nights out on the town. He had a bathhouse by the beach built, a barn and carriage house for visitors to use the hotel carriage and rest their own animals, and also provided infrastructure improvements with the addition of an electric dynamo to provide electric lights and updates to the sewage system at the hotel. He would also rebuild the bridge across the channel, which was designed to allow guests to walk across and explore the forest in what is today's Lake Harbor Park. Sweat also pushed to get a gravel road built to the hotel. The somewhat remote location of it, while it provided a nice and peaceful and less busy atmosphere, but also made it difficult to get to the hotel at times. In general, guests would arrive at the Mona Lake station on the east side of Mona Lake in trains from Grand Rapids and Muskegon. They would then take a ferry boat operated by the hotel for about a 30-minute ride around the lake until they reached the dock on the channel in front of the hotel. There was also a swing bridge across Mona Lake where the Henry Street Bridge stands today, but it was quite the carriage ride for Muskegon to reach the hotel. In the 1890s, a short-lived rail line from today's Pier Marquette Beach south along the shore of Lake Michigan provided rail service for those visiting the hotel. However, the sands soon claimed this line and it became cost prohibitive. For more history on this line, listen to our podcast titled Tracks in the Sand. 
the New Lake Harbor Hotel officially opened on June 26, 1897, and it had 225 booked for the season at that time. The typical season for the hotel would run the last week of June, so that it was opened in time for the 4th of July, which typically was the official kickoff for the hotel and this season. The hotel would then stay open for the summer, closing in September. Sweat said of his first season under his total ownership that he could have booked another 100 guests. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So who were these guests? Well, the hotel mostly catered to wealthy or middle class residents from cities like Chicago and Grand Rapids. However, it also attracted visitors every summer from around the United States. Many who came were of high stature, including several judges, lawyers, preachers, and politicians. While this first year was great, it was not without its challenges. Because the new hotel was so popular, and many came out for the day to visit it, the ferry Portia, which transported passengers from the rail depot to the hotel, often had more than it could hold. One of the ways they tried to fix this was to tie rowboats onto the steamer. However, the steamer didn't collect the funds before loading the passengers on the rowboat in one trip, and so some enterprising men, as they came into the view of the docks, cut the boat from their rowboat to the steamer, and rowed the rest of the way ashore, ducking out before having to have pay. The Chronicle mentions that, quote, when it was learned they were from Grand Rapids, the why for of such conduct was sufficiently explained, end quote. Another incident happened after a late night dance at the hotel, when some young men from the town at about 1 a.m. went out onto the hotel's grounds and hooted and hollered, waking up the guests before fleeing into the night. These incidents aside, the hotel functioned very well, and this year kicked off its long success. One other improvement made over time was the addition of a golf course adjoining the hotel. This grew to be a 27-hole course and was known as one of the best and first in all of western Michigan. The hotel would several times a year hold tournaments not only for their guests, but for anyone who wished to attend, and these included men and women's trophies. Other recreation offered include fishing, of which there are several stories of 40-plus pound muskies being caught near the hotel, boating with rowboats in Mona Lake, spending time in the hotel's casino, which was not a place for gambling, but rather what they called an auditorium back then, and it had use as a stage for live musicians, a dance hall, vaudeville performances, and hosted game nights. They also offered later in the hotel's life bowling tournaments on its bowling alley, ping pong tournaments, as well as tennis and there was a golf instructor as well as swimming instructor on staff for many years. Other amenities such as an art gallery could be found there, a post office, a store, and a bathhouse. The dining room was also vital to the hotel, not only to feed guests, but visitors from nearby Muskegon who came to see what was on the menu. An 1897 Chronicle article lists the menu for the restaurant as a consomme a la royal, cream of chicken soup, planked whitefish, vegetables, leg of mutton with caper sauce, ox tongue in a vinaigrette, supreme chicken jardinier, filet mignon in mushroom sauce, prime rib au jus, fresh lobster mayonnaise, asparagus on toast, strawberry shortcake, lemon meringue pie, apple pie, angel food cake, vanilla ice cream, American cheese, Roquefort and Edam cheese, 
mint water crackers, and fruit and coffee. The hotel at one point had so much going on that they ended up creating their own paper called the Lake Harbor Breeze, which detailed the summer's events, who was staying, and what could be found in the nearby area to do. All of this, as you can imagine, wasn't cheap, and in 1907 it cost about $10 a night to stay, which is around $300 today. The hotel was widely advertised in papers, though, throughout the Midwest, and I found one which I'd like to share, which described it as thus. This resort, being far enough removed from the cheap excursion radius, is not overrun with transient crowds to the discomfort of our guest. We maintain this resort for the pleasure of our permanent guest and provide a safe, healthy, and pleasant place where Gemin can leave his family and feel assured that they will suffer none of the dangers or annoyances of the average resort overrun with excursionists. The Lake Harbor Hotel was under the management of Edward R. Sweat until 1907 when he passed away. Following his death, his nephew, Edward D. Sweat, took over the operation and would continue to run it until May 27, 1918, when it burned down. The fire was believed to have started in a baking oven that was heated up to make the early morning bread. The flames were initially discovered by a visitor at one of the resort cottages who saw flames in the main hotel building at about 10.40 p.m. By the time the fire department arrived, it was too late to save the entire structure, and they decided to try their best to keep it from spreading from the main building to many of the nearby buildings and cottages as they could. The hotel ended up being a total loss with damages estimated about $500,000. Following the fire, there was much talk about reconstructing it, but nothing ever materialized. The loss of the Lake Harbor Hotel was tough for many residents and distant visitors who had so many happy memories there. It was also considered a great marketing asset for Muskegon, attracting many people to the area and bringing attention and name recognition to Muskegon, as well as wealthy patrons who spent money in the community. In 1919, a group of Chicago investors bought the lot and turned it into an ROTC camp called Camp Roosevelt to train young men on how to be officers. This camp was soon disbanded though, and eventually in 1938, a pastor bought the property and began the construction of Maranatha, which still operates on the land that once housed the Lake Harbor Hotel. I'd like to thank you for listening to Muskegon History and Beyond today, and we hope to have you back for our next episode in two weeks. <laughs>